Um, it's good to be with you guys. It's, it's good to get to preach a couple times in three weeks. I don't know if I've ever done that before. Um, but I love getting to talk to our church because I think that there's, there's things that God has like shown me, you know, that he really wants for our church. He really wants for me, wants for you. Um, so it's an honor to get to be up here and to tell you those things. So um, I just want to open up with this question. Um, it's kind of a big question, but I just want to ask, what does God want from you? Okay, big question. What does God want from you? I, I just want you to have that in the back of your mind um, through this sermon. Okay, so we're going to be in Mark chapter 7. Um, when I read the scripture and, and start to talk about it, just keep that question. What does God want from you? Keep it in your head. Uh, but first, before I get into Mark 7, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us. God, we love you. Thank you for this church. God, thank you for giving us your son. And um, God, I pray that today we would just have ears to hear what you want us to hear. And I pray, God, that our hearts would just be soft. <clears throat> and I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would just come and speak to us today. Because I think there's things that you want to tell us. So make us open. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so Mark chapter 7. I'm going to read 1 through 23, and then I will start talking. <laughs> okay, starting in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of their elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups, pots, copper vessels, dining couches, Kind of weird. Uh, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus, making, the word, making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that is going into him that can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters into his heart, not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Okay, so interesting story. Um, these scribes and Pharisees come up to Jesus and his disciples, and they just start, like, nagging them. And they're like, hey, why are you guys eating with unclean hands? Because that 
contradicted the traditions that had been passed down. And this criticism from the scribes and Pharisees kind of turned into Jesus just shredding them. And he, he, he just rips into them. He quotes Isaiah, calls them hypocrites, says that they've made void the word of God. He just shreds them. And then, he, and then he goes into detail with his disciples and some other people listening and explains that things that go into your body don't make you unclean, but what comes out of your body makes you unclean. So it's kind of what's going on here. It's an interesting scripture. I think we can learn a lot from it. Um, the first thing, though, I think that, that would be valuable to do is just explain a little bit about who these scribe characters are. And Grant talked about this a few weeks back, um, but I'm going to just do it again. So scribes, the job of a, a scribe, it's kind of in the title, right? They were copyists, okay? So they just copied the Bible. They didn't have Xerox machines. They didn't have printing presses back then. Um, so if they wanted the Bible replicated, they needed to literally write it out by hand. So they had a really important job. And you might imagine, you know, if these people are spending their whole life writing out the Word of God, they're probably going to be pretty well-versed in the Word of God. So they didn't end up just copying the law, right? They, they, their role kind of developed over time, and they also became teachers and commentators. And they would not only write out the law or teach the law, but even explain, like, how to meticulously keep the law, because the law was a pretty complex thing. And what ended up happening is, is it didn't just stop at, like, explaining the law. They, they started amplifying the law and even adding to it. And what ended up happening is, like, there's the law, the things that we read in the Old Testament, and then there was, like, all of these other oral traditions that were passed down um, through the generations. And after the time of Jesus, these eventually got compiled, and they're called the Mishnah now, for anybody who's interested in Judaism. They have this book called the Mishnah, and it's this compilation of all these traditions that people were supposed to keep. Um, so obviously, like we see here, the things that Jesus and his disciples are doing, eating with unclean hands, it didn't contradict the word of God. It contradicted their traditions. And because it was unclean, this was a thing that was seen as unclean. And back in the Old Testament, for us to really understand what's going on here, I think we need to, to understand that the cleanliness is a really important thing in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. There are all of these laws for explaining, like, for people to, to be clean, okay? And, and it's not like physical cleanliness is really the, the point. It's, it's spiritual cleanliness. And the message that we see through the Old Testament law is that to be with God, you got to be clean. You have to sacrifice animals so your sin can get dealt with. You, when, when people have diseases in their body, there's all these steps that they have to go through. And um, the, the purpose of all of that was to, to reveal to us that God is perfect and anything unclean cannot be with him. And ultimately, this points to Jesus, right? This is why Jesus died on the cross, but the Pharisees totally missed it. And it resulted in them kind of creating this crazy legalistic system of rules and regulations that people needed to follow. And then they go and they evaluate Jesus and his disciples by these traditions, these added traditions, and they judge them and and, uh, and then Jesus shreds them, right, which I'm going to get into here in a minute. So I just think it's important to understand that in order to really understand the rest of the scripture. So I think there's a couple critical errors um, that we see Jesus point out in the scribes and Pharisees. And I think the first and probably the biggest is that these people, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, they elevated something above the word of God. That's a huge mistake. They elevated something above the word of God. We see in verse 8, Jesus said to them, you leave the command of God, commandment of God, and hold to the tradition of men. And then in verse 9, he said, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. 
And then verse 13, he said, you make void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and many such things you do. So tradition was causing these people to reject, leave, and make void the word of God. And that's, that's really serious. And then Jesus gives an example in verses 10 through 12. One, he, he mentions one of the Ten Commandments, which is honor your father and mother. And they had this um, little tradition thing that they could do to get out of that command, where they would say, whatever I'd give to my father and mother, I'm just going to give it to God. And Jesus says, you're making void the word of God. You're literally like weaseling your way out of commandments that are really, really important. And not only that, but at the end, in, in, in verse 13, he says, in many such things you do. This was just one example. So they had elevated something above the word of God. And it was their tradition. So I think a good question to ask is, why did this happen? And I think this, the simple answer, there's probably a lot of answers, but the biggest one is their pride. They had pride. Their, their religious position got to their head. These people were really important back then. Everyone looked up to them, but their religious position got to their head and it blinded them, causing them to want what belongs to God, which is power, control, glory. They wanted their own way. And it's kind of crazy when you think about it. Okay, these scribes, like their literal job is to be experts in the word of God. And they had the word of God, Jesus. John, John chapter 1 calls Jesus the word of God. They had the word of God standing in front of them. And they criticized him and rejected him because they were so blinded by pride. Think about that. They're supposed to be experts in the word of God. And when the word of God manifests, was right in front of them. They rejected him, criticized him. Pride is dangerous. It's so blinding. So I think another good question to ask is, do we do this? Do we ever let traditions um, hold a higher place than the word of God in our life? And, and I, I, I don't know, for our church, I, I hope not collectively as a church body. I hope that we don't let tradition be elevated above God's word in our life. But I do think that like across the board of Christianity, this happens sometimes where there's really good, important biblical ideas that get elevated to a place they're not supposed to be. Like for example, baptism. Baptism is a, a really important thing all over scripture. It's a symbol of us moving from death to life in Christ. It's a symbol of us dying to our sin and being born into Christ. It's extremely important. But I think in a lot of Christian traditions, it gets manipulated and turned into this thing it's not ever really supposed to be. And people, you know, I got baptized as a baby. I don't really see that in Scripture. Another, just for me personally, the tradition that I grew up in, we had these things called the, the sacraments. And a lot of them are rooted in really good biblical stuff, but over time, the tradition just develops and gets amplified and um, gets to the point where, where literally in some sects of Christianity, like, tradition is on, the, it's literally seen as equally as important to the Word of God. And that's a mistake. Like, that's, that's not good. The Word of God needs to be the highest authority in our life. But, but past the point of tradition, what, are there other stuff, other things that we elevate to the same level of authority as the Word of God in our life? And I think, yes, I think, I think there's a lot of stuff that we, we put over the Word of God in our life. And I, I just want to say something. You, you will never experience what you were designed to experience through God's Word unless it ha is the highest source of authority in your life. That's just, I'll say it again. You, you will never experience what you were designed to experience through the Word of God unless it is the highest source of authority in your life. And I think, thank you, and I think there's some things that, that can rival the Word of God. 
for being the highest source of authority in our life. I mean, look back at the past, like, year and a half. I would say political ideologies can often become something where, where like, they, they mute the, the, the voice of Scripture in people's lives, whether you're on the right or the left. Like, and I think that they can have so much sway over our, our views and the way we live and the way we think. The Word of God has to be the highest authority in our life. I'll say it a million times. I think even just relationships, like relationships that we have with other people can really impact us and, and affect our ideologies more than the Word of God in our life. But I think the biggest one, there's probably lots of examples, but I think the biggest one, the biggest thing that becomes a rival to God's Word in our life is our own opinions. The, the Bible, like the Word of God, it, it, it's challenging, okay? And a lot of times it challenges some of our opinions or or some of our lifestyles, I guess, is what I'll say. <clears throat> Hebrews 4.12 calls the word of God, it says it's living and active, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Sometimes I read things in this book that just don't feel good. I'm like, I wish I didn't read that. It's so challenging. It's a challenging book, and it gets in the way of our opinions in the way that we live, some of the time. I think you take sexuality, for, for example. The things that the Bible says about sexual immorality or homosexuality, like they're really uncomfortable to a lot of us. Or even like how the, the Bible calls out gossip, the practice of gossip, or drunkenness. Like things the Bible just condemns, living different from the world. Like that's something we read in Scripture that we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be people who live different from the world. That's hard. It doesn't feel good. And I, I think it's so easy to just let our opinions or the ways that we live um, get in the way of Scripture. So much of the time I see, I see this happen. I see um, something in Scripture conflict with a person's life, you know. And instead of, of taking Scripture and elevating it above our own opinions, it's so easy to, to ignore what the Bible says, to compromise or to twist it, make it say what we want it to say. And that's really dangerous, because when you do that with one thing, you're going to end up doing it with a lot of other things. It's dangerous. And when, when we read something in Scripture that doesn't feel good, what we need to do is not ignore it, not twist it. We need to just trust that God knows what he's talking about. We need to trust that he cares about us, and that his commands are for our good. Like for me, from in my life, when I, when I met Jesus my freshman year of college, there was a lot of junk in my life that was not supposed to be there. <laughs> and as I started getting into the Word and, and seeing what the Bible says and, and how the Bible commands me to live, once I got into community, like there's just a couple things that rose to the surface. Sexuality, for one. I was very uncomfortable with what the Bible said about sexuality. Like, God made sex to be between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. Nothing else. Like, porn is not cool, okay? It's not something that should be in the life of a Christian. I'm really excited we're doing this retreat in a couple weeks. That was so hard for me. No, like, a, a huge part of me wanted to just twist what Scripture said to accommodate what I wanted. You know, but thankfully, th thanks to community and just the, the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, I was like, no, okay, I, the things that I want to do have not gotten me very far. So I just need to trust God 
even though I might not understand why some of his commands are here, I just need to trust him and be obedient to him and, and just try to do that, you know, and I did, and I'm, I'm so thankful for it. But I think another thing, just like another example, when I first met Jesus, yoking myself to unbelievers, that was, that was something that the Bible talks about, not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. That was really challenging to me because all of my friends, right, and all of the relationships I'd been in up to that point were with people who were not following Jesus. And I was challenged by God's word. I remember having a conversation with Grant. He was trying to invite me to some H2O bonfire. And I'm like, I can't go to that. I'm not, I, I'm not like those people that are there. Like, no way. Like, my, I don't have friends that are Christians. That's uncomfortable. Um, but he challenged me, and the Holy Spirit challenged me. And I realized, like, okay, I, I trust God. I, I need to adjust. I'm the one who needs to adjust. Scripture does not need to be the thing that adjusts. So we need to have a high view of God's word in our life. And it needs to be the highest source of authority in our life. Revelation 20 Verse 4, I'm going to read this for us. It, it says, it's a, from the book of Revelation, so it's John's vision of the end times. And he says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who not worshipped the beast or its image had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There's a detail in there. Where, where the first time I, I saw it, it like rocked me a little bit. It says, and the word of God. I saw the souls of those who've been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. That makes sense, right? It makes sense that people in the past and in the future will die for the, the gospel, the testimony of Jesus. But it says, and for the word of God. People have been and people will be killed, not only for the testimony of Jesus, but also for the word of God. Because God and his word are one. When we reject his word, we're rejecting him. So we need to let it be, like I've said a million times, we need to let it be the highest source of authority in our life. Rather than conforming the word of God to us and to our opinions, we need to conform to his word. Okay? And that's hard to do. And the Pharisees failed. But let's not be people who fail. Even if you disagree with some of the things the Bible says, even if you read things in there that they feel like they pierce you and you just want to ignore them, don't reject it. Don't twist it. It's okay that it's uncomfortable. So I think there's a, a second um, critical error that the scribes and Pharisees made that we can learn from. And there's probably more, but I, I, a second thing that just caught my attention when I was studying this scripture is that Jesus calls them hypocrites. In verse 6, he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. And he quoted a scripture from Isaiah. He called them hypocrites. That, that word hypocrite, it, it refers to an actor who hid behind a mask. And the word literally means pretender. So he's pretty much calling them fake. Saying, hey, you guys are fake. You're pretenders. And they were, okay? Like the, the, these scribes, these Pharisees, they were pretty fake. They were um, empty, I would say. Some would, might, might even call them religious. Religious, that's a word we kind of throw around sometimes. And I want to talk about that for a second, religious. Um, there's a lot of, like, I don't know, different opinions on that word, which is, is kind of funny to me. Biblically, the word religious or religion, is, it's not actually a bad word at all, okay? I think it gets used in, like, a negative way sometimes. It's not a bad word. In fact, James 1.27 says, religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's a good thing, 
right? Religion is, is a good thing, but I think that in general, our, our cultural like, understanding of the word religion and the, the baggage that's attached to that word today in our generation is kind of unfortunate, right? I, I think that that word religion um, kind of gets tied to like the tradition stuff I was talking about earlier or just like rule keeping, mindless rule keeping or um, like looking the Christian part, looking perfect, checking all the boxes, appearing to be holier than thou. It, cra- it cracks me up when I'm like doing evangelism on campus sometimes, people will, acu- will call me, like, they'll be like, you're so religious. And sometimes I, I just roll with it. Sometimes I'm, I'm like, your understanding, I know you, that their understanding of the word religion is not what it actually means. And I'm like, no, I have a relationship with God. It's, it's different. But I just, I, wanna, I wanna clear, wanted to clear that up a little bit. But I, I, would, I would say that the Pharisees were like religious in the bad way. They were empty. They were fake. They were pretenders. And I think to, to understand why, um, it's important that we, we look at, at something. It's called the Shema. You might not be familiar with it, but if, any, if someone was Jewish back then and today, they would know what the Shema is, okay? The sh- Shema, the word Shema literally means here. Um, and it's seen as like the most important command in, in Judaism. Uh, and we get it from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6. And you'll probably recognize it. It'll probably ring a bell. Um, and this is what it says. It says, here... O Israel, Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Sounds familiar, right? Sounds like the greatest commandment when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he really is just quoting the Shema. But that's, it literally represents the the greatest commandment in all of Judaism, and these people Jesus was dealing with here are the religious leaders, like the Jewish religious leaders. Not only was keeping this command extremely important for them, but they were also the people who are supposed to lead others in keeping this command. They're supposed to be equipping people to love God with all of their, their heart, soul, might. I was looking at a, at a commentary, and it said that the true heart of rabbinic Judaism is supposed to be loving God, like the Shema says, but rather it became self-righteousness. Their highest responsibility was to love God with all their heart, soul, and might, but they became self-righteous. Like, these are the guys who killed Jesus, God in the flesh, which is like the, the craziest picture of hypocrisy maybe ever. People whose life is supposed to be loving God with all their heart, soul, might, end up killing the God that they're supposed to be worshiping and loving. That's crazy. Like, that is literally the definition of hypocrisy. And, and once again, it's worth asking, why did this happen? And I think, once again, the reason is pride. I think it was able to happen because they love themselves. They love their status, their power, way more than they love God. So looking once again at our own life, are we ever guilty of being hypocrites? And I think a good litmus test for that is is this question, what's our our highest priority? Is it loving God or is it ourself? Is it our plans, our status, our salary, our life? Or is it loving God with all our heart, soul, might? And I'll even take it a step further, right? Jesus like expands the command. He's asked, what's the greatest command? He says, Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, quoting the Shema. And then he says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
So I think a good way to test and see, like, are we being hypocrites or am I hypocritical or not, is asking the question, do I love God and do I love people? Is that my priority or is my priority myself? I think that if we're faithfully pursuing God and loving people, it's going to be impossible to be hypocritical because we're kind of out of the picture. And that's, that's literally what Jesus did with his life. He spent his life loving God, loving people. That's what he calls us to do with our life is loving God, loving people. There's a scripture that um, I think really clearly paints what it looks like to love God and love people. It's Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's how we're called to live, to seek Others' needs, God's will above our own. That's what following Jesus looks like. In, in, in verse 7, um, in Mark 7, Mark chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus, one of the things that he says when he's quoting Isaiah, he says, in vain they worship me. Which vanity, the, the definition of the word vanity is just having or showing an excessively high opinion of one's appearance, abilities, or worth. So he's accusing them that even their worship is about them. It's not about God, which is funny because that's like the total opposite of what worship is supposed to be. Like worship is us having a small view of ourselves and just having a massive view of God, humbly coming to him and just praising him for who he is. But Jesus tells them in vain, you worship me. And even in your worship, your focus is yourself. And I think it's so easy to to slip into that. It's so easy for us to make our faith about us. And I say this all the time. I'm going to be a broken record, but it isn't about you. Your life is not about you. Your relationship with God isn't even about you. Jesus, in, in Mark 8, which I think we're getting into next week, he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. And then he says, if anyone wants to save his life, he has to lose it. But if anyone loses his life for my sake, he'll find it. It's so easy to make our faith all about us. It's so easy to even like come to church and make it about us. What can I get from God? Rather than like, God, how can I worship you? It's so easy. But it's not about us. Our life, our faith, it's not about us. It's all about him. When you look at the, I read that Revelation end time scripture a minute ago. when When you look at it, like a lot of the, prophetic things that point to the end times. Uh, Matthew 24 is like a really good scripture to look at if you're studying the end times. And one of the things that Jesus repeats over and over and over again in Matthew 24 is that a lot of people are going to fall away. A lot of people are going to be led astray. People are going to fall away. In my opinion, my hunch is that the reason so many people are going to fall away around the time of Jesus' return is because Christianity is going to be so self-focused. And if it's, if it's self-focused, if my faith is all about me, as soon as it gets hard, I'm out. Like as soon as persecution is on the horizon, I'm out. I'm dipping. 
But if my faith is all about God, if my life is all about God, if my religion, like if, it's, if I realize my perspective is that like, I'm not a Christian for me. I'm not alive for me. I'm here for Jesus. My life belongs to him. I've died to myself. I'm carrying my cross. I'm following him. Then when life gets hard, when persecution comes, we're in. Because it's not about us. We're out of the picture. And this is hard stuff. Like, all, the stuff I'm talking about, it's hard. Like, it's hard to make it not about us. It's hard to elevate scripture above everything else in our life and let it be the highest authority. It's hard to seek other people's needs over our own. It's hard to, to be obedient to the word when it's really challenging, when it's a two-edged sword that pierces us. It's hard. And I, I would say, it, like, that's okay. It, it, these aren't things that we can, can do on our own. Like, we need God's grace if we're going to make our life all about him. That is not something we can do on our own. And I think there's this beautiful truth. My favorite part of Mark 7 is in the, the end. Verse 14 through 23. I think there is a beautiful truth that we can unlock in, in, in those verses. Okay, Jesus, um, I, I don't think the scribes and Pharisees are around anymore. He's with people and his disciples. I don't, I don't know how many people are here, but he's clarifying cleanliness. He's explaining this topic of cleanliness. And he's explaining that things that, that come into your body don't make you unclean because they don't go into your heart. They go into your stomach and then whatever. You poop them out, I guess. I don't know. It's kind of funny. But... Um, <laughs> And then, he, and then he picks up and explains where uncleanliness and wickedness comes from. In verse 21 and 22, he says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride. He throws pride in there, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So where does, the, where does the wickedness come from? Where does the evil in us come from? Where does the pride that the Pharisees had and that we so much of the time have, where does it come from? It comes from within. It comes from the heart, specifically. Jesus says they, they come from within, out of the heart of man. But, but pause, okay, pause, rewind to a few verses earlier. When Jesus is quoting Isaiah, he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So just track with me. I think this is really profound when you, when you pick up on what's going on here. Jesus explains that all evil, like all the junk, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, wickedness, deceit, all this junk, all the pride of the Pharisees, it comes from the heart. But what is, what is God upset with the Pharisees about? He's upset with them because he had their lips, but he didn't have their heart. Guys, that is, that is beautiful. When I read that, what I see is that our heart is so jacked up. Like, we are messy people. We're full of junk that's not supposed to be there, but, but yet God wants our heart. He wants our dirty hearts. He wants the messy version of us. Okay? He wants the anxious you. He wants the porn addicted you. He wants the eating disorder you. He wants the, the you that you don't want anyone else to see. He wants your heart because he can change it. He's the only one who can change it. 
Like, we, we can't get rid of our pride on our own. That's something that God has to, to just come in and do in our heart when we present our heart to him. But that is what he is after. He's not scared of the parts of our life that are really broken and really unclean. He wants those. He doesn't want our lip service. He doesn't want our empty religion, our rule following, our self-righteousness. He doesn't want our good deeds, our traditions. He wants our heart. And he can give us a new heart. Ezekiel 36, this is a kind of a big scripture, but it is, it is awesome. Verses 22 through 30. I'm going to read it for us. <clears throat> and I think this scripture is prophetically pointing to Jesus and to what he is going to do for his people. He says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanliness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine on your land." That is an amazing scripture. That is beautiful. One, it's cool that like the, the reason God works in our life is for his own glory. I think that's an important thing to get a hold of. God's highest priority is his own glory. But he is so glorified. He receives so much glory through our transformation. When we get a new heart, when we're, when we're made clean from our sin, when he washes those messy parts of our life away, he receives so much glory from that. And he wants to do that. He wants to give us a new heart. And he, he, he's just so uninterested in dead religion. He's so uninterested in, in getting you to just keep all the rules. He doesn't want that. He wants your heart. So I, I think maybe some of you are asking, maybe you're not. Maybe you're asking, God wants my heart. So what? How, how do I give God my heart? And for you analytical thinkers in the room, that's like such a frustrating question. <laughs> And I'm, I don't have a clear answer. I don't have a formula explaining how you can give God your heart. It's such like an ambiguous, hard to explain thing, but I'm going to give it my best shot, okay? So one, if, if Jesus isn't in your life yet, just say yes to him, okay? That's simple. Step one, give your life to Jesus. And you haven't done that, do it today, right? He died for the cross. He died on the cross to deal with your sin, to make you a new creation because he loves you. Apart from him, you're going to have to pay the price for your sin, and you can't do that. So say yes to Jesus. Step one, that's, that's, if you haven't done that today, that's the step for you to give, to give God your heart. Okay, past that, how do I give God my heart? And I, I think the only like, way, I was thinking about this so much last week, I asked Ashley, how do we give God our heart? <laughs> I think I talked to Grant about it. 
The only thing that came to my mind is I just thought of our human relationships. So I thought of my relationship with Ashley, my wife. She has my heart. I have her heart, okay? Don't want to get too, like, mushy-gushy. It's going to be impossible not to, but <clears throat> that's what marriage hopefully is, right? Like, we have each other's heart. So going into that, like, how did I give Ashley my heart? You know, like, did it happen right when I met her? I don't think so, no. Did it happen on our wedding day? I feel like it kind of had already happened before our wedding day, and I feel like it's even happening right now. Like, I feel like she gets more and more of my heart over time, but I met her. Okay, step one, right? I met, I met Ashley. We started talking, started to understand each other, build a relationship with each other. I started to, to understand her character, her desires, her aspirations in life, things that she loves and cares about. I eventually became committed to her, and we're even to the point where we're in a covenant now. We've literally agreed with our life, like we're going to be together no matter what. It's covenant. We communicate a ton. We talk all the time. We spend so much time together. We put things aside in order to spend more time together sometimes. We say no to stuff to be with each other sometimes. We wrong each other. We hurt each other sometimes. But we deal with it. Right? We have problems. We have arguments. Our marriage isn't perfect. But we deal with those things. And when, when there's challenges in life, we press into each other a little bit and deal with those things together. We trust each other. We share everything that we have. And I would say our love for each other is growing more and more and more over time. And I could go on and on forever. But this is like a, it's such a, it's such a pale reflection. But it is indeed, I think, a reflection of our relationship with God. You can kind of see, Ephesians 5 talks about this, you can see man's relationship with God through a marriage covenant. So taking all the stuff I just said and applying it to, to our relationship with God, how, does, how do we give our heart to him? We meet him, first and foremost. If he's a stranger, he doesn't have our heart. Like the random dude walking down Warner Street right now, he doesn't have my heart, I don't even know who he is. But we meet him, we have to meet him. And spend time with him. Talk to him. Start to understand who he is, what he cares about, the things that hurt his heart, what he's done. You start to build history with him. Understand his desires, God's desires. You're going to wrong him and fail. But like, go to him when you do that. Don't run away. You're probably going to be upset with him sometimes. But press in. When there's challenges in life, when you, when you have something hard come up, deal with it with him. Understand him. Like, seek him. Prioritize him. Say no to other things in order to say yes to him. James 4a is probably, I, you know how we all have like a million verses and we say it's our favorite verse in the Bible? I'm, it's probably my favorite verse in the Bible, at least one of them. It says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It's the coolest promise ever. It doesn't say draw near to God, and he might draw near to you. It doesn't say draw near to God, and one out of every ten times, he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. There's so many different ways to, to draw near, but I think that as we do that, he starts to have our heart more and more and more over time. We start to trust him more and more over time. 
And, and I think that, that for each of us, like there's, there are ways in each of our lives where we can and need to give God our heart. And, and I, I don't have like a bullet point list of five steps on how to do that. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But I think that there's ways in each of our life where God is like, Daniel, Ashley, Bennett, like I want your heart in this part of your life. Come to me in this way. Draw near to me in this way. Give this thing to me. And we need to just say yes to him. And if we just keep saying yes to him over and over, we keep spending time with him, trusting him, messing up but running to him when we do, he'll have our heart. And he'll make it clean. And he'll give us, he'll, he will give us a new heart. He'll put his spirit in us. I think that, that one of the, the biggest things God just wants to like impress on our church is Intimacy. I think he wants us to be a people who literally prioritize intimacy above all else. Intimacy with him above all else. It is the most important thing. It is, it's the first commandment. It's the, it was the first commandment in the Old Testament. The, the scene is like literally the most important thing for a Jew to keep. And Jesus says it's today the most important commandment. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength. I think God wants to grow our body in intimacy. Like, I'm so imperfect at this. Um, I, I, like, I, it just feels like it's so up and down in my life, right? There's days, weeks, months where, where I feel so connected and so intimate with God, and then there's dry spells, and, and it's frustrating. But when I look back at, like, the past seven years of my life, I think that, that some of the, the coolest moments— just the, the moments that come to my mind, obviously getting married, and but those moments when I was just in God's presence, weeping, because he was encountering me so much. Like, that's what it's all about. And I think God wants to just lead us as a church deeper into that, deeper into intimacy with him. Because he's our father. He, he is our maker. Like, how much of a shame is it if creation never actually engages with its creator. We were designed to know him and to love him and to be intimate with our dad. So however you need to do that, I just, I just challenge you to say yes. If, if you don't read your Bible, okay, pretty easy to know where to start. But how, how, whatever, like, if God is just putting something on your heart right now and saying, I want you to draw near to me, I want you to be intimate with me in this way, I want you to give me your heart in this way, just please say yes. He's asking you for a reason, and he loves you. So, worship team, you can come up, and I, I just want to pray over us, and um, I just want to pray that God would really grow us, because I, I don't think that, this, that, that all of this is stuff we can do on our own. All the stuff I've talked about, elevating scripture above everything, not being hypocrites, seeking God's will and other people over ourself. We need God's grace. We need to draw near to him. We need his help. So God, yeah, just, just come. We can't do it on our own. We can't even draw near with our heart on our own. I would say we need your help even in that. So just come right now, and I just pray that you would move in our life. Touch us, God. God, empower us to, to just 
let go of the junk that we hold on to. We just see in that scripture that our heart is full of wickedness, envy, deceit, pride, sexual immorality. We've got junk in our life, in our heart. But God, you want our heart. And when we give it to you, you receive so much glory. So even just while we're worshiping God, I pray that, that we would be able to give you our heart in a way that we haven't before. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd come and, and do whatever you want to do in us. Just pray, God, more of you and less of us. God, I pray that you would just lead our church into intimacy with you. God, that we'd make space for you in our life. We wouldn't just give you the scraps. We wouldn't just give you our Sunday and Thursday evenings. God, that we'd give you everything because you are worthy of it. And you want our heart, you want all of us.